Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. We're excited. We've got someone back on that you all love because we love him too. Alex, who we got on. I love that pause there, like you forgot where you were. <laughs> I did totally forget where I was. Just Are you podcasting moment. with someone else? Did you have to think about whose podcast you're on? Uh, do you know what? How do you know I'm not podcasting <laughs> with someone else? <laughs> do you know what? I know you haven't got the energy to podcast with anyone else after we're done. Um, I'm massively excited. So listeners may remember that Colin Fisher came on from Madrid, um, our Madrid correspondent now we've decided, and gave us a fantastic rundown of some events in the Spanish Civil War and everybody absolutely adored him. So he's back. Hey, Colin. Buenos dias, compañeras. Uh, I don't, <laughs> it's too early in the morning for my Spanish. <laughs> Hello, um, comrades. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm still, at, I haven't finished my coffee, Colin. I'm still at the level oh, sorry, of just, I'm just, I, word is about what you're going to get. I'm an hour ahead, so yeah. I've had, I've, I've I've had my substantial coffee, yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> Colin, lovely to be here. Oh, we're so glad to have you back. Not only are you obviously massively passionate about Spanish history, but the arts as well. Um, yes. And you've come on today because we will do some more Civil War stuff with you because you're amazing at it. Thank you. You've come on today to talk to us about Cervantes, haven't you? Yes, yes. Miguel gonna... de Cervantes de Saavedra. Yeah, which is going to be absolutely brilliant because I know the name and nothing else. I don't know about you, Alina. I know less than you. Excellent. All right, then. Well, so let's start with some broad brushstrokes for people. Absolutely. Put him in context. Tell us about Spain in the 16th century. Spain in the 16th century would be an amazing place to be. It would be a terrifying place to be, but you would not be bored for a moment. Uh, when he's born in 1547, uh, you've got to think that it's only been since 1492 with the, you could call the European discovery of the Caribbean, Central America, South America, and parts of coastal North America. And that has transformed everything. Oh, Spain well, has so come... 1547, just for everyone, is the year Henry VIII dies, isn't it? So again, you put it into, into, into that context, we're also talking about massive European uh, uh, problems, arguments, wars, conflicts, largely over religion, but also the First intimations of empire building as well, the development of international commerce on a scale that's never been seen before. So you put it all together, and he's born into very interesting times. Uh, they've come through a tough uh, 15th century. Uh, they've come through wars of succession uh, after the, the death of the Catholic kings. Uh, they've got some stability, quite a lot of stability when their grandson uh, Charles V becomes emperor and then also king of, of, of Spain. They've come through famine, they've come through economic crisis, and now they've got the discovery by Europeans, by people like Columbus, of this new land. And what it has brought in is just enormous amounts of silver. Yes, there's gold, but the silver has transformed Spanish society completely. Uh, it transforms it for the better and it transforms it from the worst. Uh, Charles V is probably quite a sort of, you want to call him a Renaissance man. He mm -hmm. might have been prepared to have given Martin Luther a fair hearing. He might not, but you would have certainly have considered that his son, Philip II, would never have 
done that. Philip II wants to put Spain on a mission to save the world for the Catholic faith. He's, uh, uh, yeah, he's militant, isn't he? Yes. He's the guy that will eventually order the Spanish Armada. Absolutely. And Cervantes has his own little part to play in that too. Uh, so uh, we've got this massive imperial ex- expansion that goes from all of Italy, apart from the Papal States and Savoy, into the Low Countries, parts of what we would call Germany and Austria, all of Spain, not Portugal yet, but all the way over to the New World as well. It's this growing empire. It's at almost its, uh, its most expansion. Still got bits of the Philippines to consolidate, but they're there uh, already. But how, so how does that affect Spain? Well, on the one hand, they're rich. I mean, they're just, they're just physically rich. They've got so much silver pouring into the country, and it just keeps on growing more and more every year. So what does that mean? It means that they stop building things their own. It does help the Spanish economy because the population is also growing too, so you've got more consumers. But, for example, the trade in fabric, creating their own cloth, falls through the floor because they can now import everything. Uh, some historians have, 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 have commented that the countries that actually benefit from the Spanish empire, it's not Spain, it's England and Holland, because they're the ones that are exporting finished goods into Spain. Now, England gets its cake and it eats it, because not only are they stealing its silver as it's brought back <laughs> over uh, uh, to Spain by ship, uh, it's, they're also selling finished cloth to them as well, something which the Spanish could have done beforehand, but now they don't have to. And it also helps create, it's not the sole cause, but it does help uh, stimulate rampant inflation in the country. Prices go out of control. You've also got a growing population, which is becoming urban, which is leading to a housing crisis, which in turn leads to increased inflation and social strains as well. So you've got that kind of economic side that's going on. Uh, on the one hand, it is opening up. The Mediterranean has also always been regarded, and more so, as sort of Spain's sea. And they've got the Turks at the other end. And we'll talk about that in a, in, in a moment. We've also got this westward expansion. But you've also got this inward, conservative, hierarchical, religiously zealots that form much of the ruling class. So it's not just economics, though, is it? Uh, Cervantes is born into a Spain that's undergo, undergone profound cultural change. Exactly. Exactly, because we've got uh, this massive geographical economic expansion, but it's actually changed the nature of Spain itself. So yes, it is expanding, but you'll also find, for example, Philip II orders all Spanish students back from foreign universities because of the fear of the Protestant faith, that they are going to become infected, they're going to become heretical, and they're going to bring that back to Spain. There's Uh, no religious tolerance at all in Spain, is there? No, which is odd in a country that because of the uh, Muslim occupation of, well, from a half to two thirds, because Mm. of the interaction, you'd have thought otherwise. But actually, one of the ways that you could annoy a Spaniard in this period would have been to have questioned his lineage. Not meaning was he legitimate or illegitimate, that in itself would have been a problem, but just to imply there might have been some Jewish blood there, there might have been some Muslim blood in there. that was something which, which they became very sensitive about. So the Muslims are forced to convert yeah, and the Jews right. are booted out. They are expelled in 1492. They are given the option for forcible conversion, uh, but the majority are, are, are booted out. And that in itself, well, any act like that is going to close the frontiers ever, uh, even more. Uh, you'll find that many of the Jewish families over the years are heavily involved in education, the development of science, mathematics. They're heavily involved in economic interests. They have international contacts. They have links spread across the whole of Europe and the Mediterranean. And that's gone. And they were a money-making class that are paying their taxes, providing in the economy. So you've lost that, but you've also lost a whole dynamic culture. The Muslims are, on the whole, uh, conversos, so they've been forcibly converted. They carry on with their own faith. Uh, They are, on the whole, farmers. They are working particularly in Andalusia. 
but the Spanish always suspect that they're not exactly uh, doing what they should be doing, i.e. being good Christians. So you've got this religious change as that has gone on, and then beyond that, it's odd. If we're talking about Spain coming into the early modern era, up through the middle and late medieval periods, just before this, uh, Spain was regarded by other European countries as a very uh, a, a country of a lot of of much probity, of sobriety, seriousness, hard work. Uh, they're not prone to telling jokes. You know, they've got a job to do. They have the uh, reconquista, the, uh, the conquest of Muslim Spain to carry out. So they have this reputation, which is far in a way of what Spaniards themselves would see themselves now, a bit more anarchic, a bit more laid back, a bit louder, very family orientated and so on. But actually, like everything else, it's all determined by history. And that changes from one generation to the other. This idea of a country that is proud of what it's achieved by hard work, by seriousness, by sobriety, that all goes. And instead of these classes I've mentioned before, particularly with the Jewish communities, a very dynamic uh, community involved in, say, education, science, economy, and so on. Uh, we've got large Muslim land holdings and so on. In the countryside, you have a new class. And this is where we start to bring in Cervantes a bit. We've got the Hidalgo class. The words, the etymology is not very clear, but basically in the fights for the reconquest, and it's not one, it's many, but in those different battles, in those wars, it's a quick way of making Spanish nobles. And there's many levels of them in the field, by blood, uh, by land holding. But Hidalgo is basically minor Spanish nobility. Uh, and that's exactly who Don Quixote comes from. That's his class. Uh, and one thing that they do have in common, despite all these different classes, they don't have to pay all the same taxes. They don't have to be productive. And they never show themselves willing to do a serious day's work in their life. <laughs> they come from a proud warrior caste. And now that the war's over, well, we're just going to kind of sit around and feel proud of what our ancestors did. But I'm not going to plough that field. You know, I'm not going to invest in, in that loom. Uh, no, that's not for me. And by the 18th century, about 5% of the Spanish population are actually from the Hidalgo class. Out of 10 million or so, you know, that, that's a pretty large proportion of society not making any money for anybody. <laughs> it's brilliant. I mean, you're so right. It is a vibrant and exciting and terrifying uh, time. Let's get to Cervantes. So you, yes. you've already mentioned he was born in 1547. That's right. Who is he? Where does he come from? Very good question, because that will be important in his life. Where does he come from? Because he doesn't have the papers to show it. That will ah. be very important, this idea of racial purity. He's born in a large town called Alcalá de Henares, southeast of Madrid. It's a university town uh, set up by Cardinal Cisneros, very important in the Catholic uh, monarchs. Uh, he himself is a bit suspect. Inquisition is never very sure of that man. He's a cardinal. He's protected, but they're not quite sure about his free thinking. So there's a kind of there's a kind of a feeling about that place, I think, uh, where it's part of Catholic Spain. But hmm, keep an eye on Alcalá de Henares. We don't know what's what's going to come out of that. Anyway, his father Rodrigo, abandoned by his own father, uh, he is a surgeon but not a surgeon as in today. He's a, the equivalent would be a barber surgeon. He's setting bones. He's sewing up wounds because it's a university town. So the university, the university students go out on a Friday night, a Saturday night, and as they say in, in Glasgow, carrying their chibs with them, their uh, daggers and knives, they get a bit drunk. And, well, of course, what do you do when you've got that combination? You stab somebody. So actually, he's spending a lot of his time sewing up students, uh, drunken students, and not getting paid for it. Uh, he's also deaf. Uh, uh, so he's, in a way, at that time, he's got a lot going against him, and he doesn't have any patronage behind him. That's a huge part of it. Uh, he does get one noble client, but we're not quite sure, but he balls it up, uh, and he loses him. 
pretty quickly. So money is always a problem. That's what he's born into. He's not born into poverty. Uh, his mother is a bit more canny, uh, and she does have some lands, vineyards, and so on. Basically, what they have is enough to ask for loans. That's what they live on, loans and credit. When poor Rodrigo does finally pass away, at a pretty advanced age, his proud boast written in his will is, I leave no debts. That's what he has to show, which is in a way not bad when you think about the period that he's in. So if you go to Alcalá de Henares today, you can go and visit his house. It's a recreation, uh, but the location is correct. And you go in and you think, well, this is rather nice. It's all pastel colours and big rooms and Arab influence. It must have been horrific because you've, you've got your father sewing up students in one room. You've mm. got your mother trying to cook uh, chickpeas and a bit of meat in the other. It's not much of an existence. So a big theme of Cervantes' life is movement. It's this myth that the, this early modern age is still an, a, an age when people don't move far from their villages or towns. Yeah. He spends his whole life moving. So we're talking about Valladolid. We're talking about Madrid. Uh, and then what seems to make a big difference is they go down to Córdoba in Andalusia and Seville. Now, Córdoba, as, as I think Cervantes described himself, uh, it's schools theatres and beggars. That's the society that he's moving into. His father's always got some failed business on the go, but it's still enough to get him an education. And from a very early age, this is what marks Cervantes out. Without his own sort of patron, uh, without going into the priesthood, he educates himself and he reads widely. He never learns Greek, but he's got schoolboy Latin. Uh, and when he's in, Cord uh, in, in, in Seville, in Sevilla, uh, he's taught by the Jesuit brothers. And being taught by the Jesuit brothers, well, it's going to be strict, but it's pretty thorough. And he does get the classics. Uh, but most of all, they put on, you can't call them plays. It's supposed to be passion plays, all with a strict religious theme. But let's face it, you know, uh, Cordoba in the 15... 50s, early 60s, you know, what else are you going to watch? You know, you're going to sit and watch the street all the time. You're going to wait till someone has a sword fight. Well, it's going to happen sometimes. But imagine being through a band and just sitting there in the dark and up on the lighted stage, there are figures, there are people, there is uh, imagination and scenery there. It does have an impact on them. But the one thing that we can't ignore really through all of this, is it's poverty. Relative poverty. They're never in the street, but they're always on the move. So I would say that kind of characterizes his childhood. And then you've got the big change. And this is where his life really does start to change. Remember, this is a country where you need to have the backing of somebody mm. to be able to move forward. You really do. Uh, there's no mass employment because, as I mentioned before, although uh, GDP continues to grow, there's no investment. So we're not expanding industries. So what's a, a, a young man going to do? Well, he actually does quite well. He ends up as what's called a mayordomo, which I suppose would be kind of almost like a kind of head butler over in Rome. Uh, but the reason why he probably went to Rome is probably wounded a man in a duel. And to escape justice, where's the one place that Spanish justice can't get his, get his hands on you? And that's going to be Rome in the, in, in the Papal States. And he gets a good gig. He's a sort of head, head butler to a young Spanish nobleman over there who becomes a cardinal at a very young age. And he's there for about a year. And now you know, that's Rome. Now, for a Spaniard, still got that tradition of, okay, we share this common heritage, Rome and Spain, Italy and Spain, uh, a Latin heritage. Mm. But Rome must have been exciting. You know, this is, this is the place to be. This is the center of power on its own. And it's also the Renaissance, the tail end of the Renaissance, but there it is there. Uh, but, and, he's, and he's reading widely. He's reading uh, Boccaccio, Petrarch, and Dante. 
So he's well-versed in Italian literature, which is very different from what he's been reading probably over in Spain. A bit more lively, a bit more of a sense of humour perhaps, uh, a bit more adventurous, and those things will become important. So that could have been his life, except what does the, uh, the young nobleman cardinal do? <laughs> he goes off and dies. So what's the young man to do then? Again, can't really get back to Spain, particularly if he's got uh, a reward on his, on his head. So he joins the army. Uh, at a time when, you know, the Spanish army, the Tercios, are the most feared armed forces in, in Europe. Uh, now that keeps him in Italy. That keeps him in Palermo and Messina and above all Naples. Naples is a cultural centre, you would say, of the Spanish territories over there. Uh, and again, it kind of gives a lie of the image of ignorant soldiers. Because what's he doing when he's training to fight in a tertio? He's yeah. reading. And he makes that quite clear. There's nothing ashamed of that. He can read, he can write. He's also a soldier. So it's given you maybe more of an insight into the military at that time. Yes, they are feared throughout Europe, but you've got men like Cervantes, uh, who are a soldier and also very, very learned. And he's reading in Spanish and he's reading in Italian and maybe some Latin as well. Mm -hmm. Then we have the Battle of Lepanto in 1571. Shit starts yes. to get serious, doesn't it? Yes, it definitely does. Because... Talking about warfare, in three hours of battle, I don't know how many thousands died there. It was a meat grinder of a battle. And it was all over in, in three hours. Well, all over in three hours, the, the, the politics go on. The thing is, so, so he's trained to fight on land. But the Mediterranean is very much part of Spain's dominion. And at the other end, you've got the Turkish Empire. And you've got the Turkish Empire that have close eyes on Venice. Uh, if they can control Venice, for example, they're not just controlling geographically, they're at that time controlling the major lines of commerce and trade that there are in the Western world. So that's what they're after, amongst many other things. Uh, you have the Holy League put together by the Pope, led by... Uh, John of Austria, who's the illegitimate son of Charles V, the Emperor, uh, brother of Philip II, and they do manage to get this international force together in a fleet to face the Turks. And it's not like, uh, from what I could see of the battle, Nelson deciding to break the line to sail between the, the land and the anchored French ships. No, it's just two fleets face each other and just not seven kinds of holy shit out of each other. And Cervantes is over on the left flank. I think the, the galley is called the Margarita, about 40 metres long. Uh, it's fast. It's very, very fast because it's designed for ramming. It doesn't have broadsides. From what I could see, it's a couple of cannons up the front. So you fire those to clear the decks of the enemy ships to knock down rigging because you want to disable because, yes, this is a holy war, but it's also booty. That's a big part of it, too. Uh, it is powered by galley slaves. And, in fact, Cervantes writes about remembering the, the, uh, one of the crew members, the coxswain, uh, with his whip lashing the backs of the galley slaves to make them go faster, to get that maximum speed. You've got aft and you've got the bow, uh, basically two castles. Uh, the veterans go at the front, the new guys go at the back, because the guys at the front will board first, uh, and they're the ones that get booty. So Cervantes, he is up in the aft, in the aft castle, and it's his job to cover these other guys. He is carrying his arquebus. He's carrying his musket. Uh, now, you're on board a ship, and it's not got a deep draft. When you look at pictures of them, uh, it's not designed for long voyages. It's designed to travel fast in the Mediterranean and to have one-off combats. Uh, and he's got his musket, his arquebusa there, 
uh, takes up to anything to one minute to reload and fire, and people are trying to kill you, and the ship's moving about all the time. And in three hours, I think it's about 40 of the crew are killed, uh, including the captain. Uh, he's in the thick of the fighting. He's actually ill with fever. And his own crew members say, look, you don't have to do this. You know, it's quite clear from all the evidence, you know, that he's not being considered a coward, just you're very ill. He says, no, uh, I would much rather die standing up than sheltering underneath. And he almost does. He gets hit three times. Three, three hits, two on the chest and one in his left hand, which destroys it. Goodness knows how he survives at the end of that. Uh, and it, that's where his name comes from, El Manco. El Manco de la Panto. El Manco means handless, missing one hand, but it's also got another meaning. It means imperfect. Uh, uh, and that comes up uh, later on uh, as well. Uh, uh, but he is very, very proud. Very, very proud. And he actually says in one of his novels, he's, he's proud of his wound. Ella tiene por hermosa, por haberla cobrado en la más memorable y alta ocasión que vieron los pasados siglos. Ni esperan veros ben, venideros, militando debajo de las vencedoras banderas del hijo del rayo de la guerra, Carlos V, de feliz memoria. So what he wrote was... Boom, by the way, for that Spanish... Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not saying I'm, I'm saying it like uh, Cervantes would, uh, <laughs> but thank you. Uh, so what he's saying there is that he has won this on the most memorable and highest occasion ever seen in previous centuries. You can't even expect to see it in the ones that are going to come. Fighting beneath the victorious flags of the son of of the of the lightning of war, Charles V of happy memory. You ask many Spanish commentators, what's his proudest achievement? What did he feel proud about? And a lot of them will say, fighting in the Battle of Lepanto. But that wound, he never felt embarrassed. Other people tried to make him feel embarrassed, but he would not let them feel embarrassed. So this changes everything. Because he can't yes. be a soldier anymore. No. Funnily enough, he stays for two more years as a soldier. Uh, we're not quite sure what he was doing, messages, uh, uh, delivering uh, letters to various headquarters. But he does take part in other operations as well. So he's there. He's, he's, he's a soldier. Uh, he has contacts with John of Austria. Uh, he's been in touch. He's had some money. And then... It's time to get paid off. And this is where I think the most incredible moment of anybody's life could come. I mean, he's already lived so much in terms of his childhood, uh, in terms of living in, just living in Spain at that time, to have taken part and survived the Battle of the Panther, let's say, a meat grinder of a battle, mm. which in the end didn't change anything either. That's the other irony. Uh, and then as he is traveling back to Spain and they're within sight of Spain. And it's a town called Cadaqués up in the northeast, which uh, in Catalonia, made famous by Salvador Dali, uh, who built his home there. Uh, and they're in sight of land. And who turns up? The Corsairs from Algiers. And the, the ship he's in is isolated from the fleet. The Corsairs, let me explain, they're not just pirates, they're slavers. Uh, one of the huge industries at that time, in that area of the Mediterranean and beyond, were slave traders. But not just people capturing slaves, but also capturing prisoners to then sell back with the threat of, if you don't, we'll put them into slavery. So it's a huge industry. And it's not just run by, you say, okay, North Africans, you know, whatever that term could mean. We're talking about he is actually captured by a renegade Albanian and Greek. That means they themselves were captured, were given the choice of their freedom and become uh, a follower of the Muslim faith or stay a slave. And if you did accept uh, Islam as your faith, your life was absolutely fine, total freedom uh, and a good life. 
Uh, and so they're actually captured by, as I say, uh, what the Spaniards would, would have regarded as uh, uh, renegades. Uh, and they're not the only ones, because up and down the Spanish coast, ships are raided, but also coastal towns are invaded by corsairs and people kidnapped uh, into, into slavery as well. And in fact, in parts of Andalusia, you'll see, you'll think, oh, that looks like a martello tower. It's actually the towers that were built at that time to protect the coast from the slavers and to give warning of their arrival and a place of safety to go to. Mm. So it's a huge industry. He's unfortunate and fortunate. He's carrying papers from John of Austria. He's just carrying them. He's not, it's not, they're not his papers. They're not talking about him. But when the slavers go through all, their, all, all the people's possessions, what they're looking for are prisoners of value. You've got those that will end up just being sold in the slave market. Uh, if you're skilled, if you're a navigator, forget it. You're never going home because you've got a skill that can be useful. Yeah. Uh, uh, if you're a carpenter, you're not going home. But if you're carrying papers signed by Don, uh, Don John of Austria, you're important. So they go, aha, you're important. You come with us. Ransom, he, right? Ransom, and a big <laughs> ransom. They picked the wrong man. You know, his dad's a, a surgeon barber. <laughs> you know, he doesn't have any money. <laughs> yeah, good luck. I know. And he, must, he must have been going, oh, no, I'm not. I'm just a guy from Alcalá de Henares. You know, believe me. No, you've got the papers on you. That's what you would say anyway. So he's brought back to Algiers. And his life there is pretty good. I mean, he's allowed to wander about the city. Uh, he's not tortured. He's not put on sale. But it's quite clear, until you pay the ransom, you're not going back. So how long is uh, he there for? He's there for, I think, let's get this right, I think he's there for five years. Five no way. <laughs> years. Five so he's years. a captive for five years. And you can go, and the worst thing is, you can go down to the beach. You can go there and watch the horizon. You can watch the ships coming in. You can watch the ships going out. But you can't leave. Did he ever try and make a run for it? He does it four times. Oh, really? He does it four times. And the the punishment for that is death. And he gets away with it because you're a bugger, Miguel de Cervantes. But, you know, know, I'll shake my fist at you. But we may still get some money out of you. Money, yeah, yeah. So, okay, (laughs) you're in solitary confinement, but I'm going to have to let you out because I can't sell damaged goods. You know, I can't torture you, I can't lash you, but you know how that gardener helped you to escape, okay? You watch from the window, and the guy's been hung. No. So it's, it's yeah, there's consequences. Uh, but he tries it's a different for, type of torture, though, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. But the one thing that comes out, because Therbantes is often seen, and rightly so, not so much as a sceptic in terms of faith, as a man with his own set of beliefs. But one thing that all the witnesses talk about there, because he's there for five years, why not just get in? He would have become a free man. He would have had to have performed and show himself as a faithful believer in Islam, whatever internally he felt, but he would have had a good life. He would have made sure of that. Uh, A lot of temptations there, but they all talk about the strength of his faith which is maybe a bit embarrassing in the 21st century. However, it's quite clear that whatever his individual idea of faith is, and it's not what maybe the Spanish Catholic Church thought, it's important to him. He prays, he writes sonnets to the Virgin Mary. Uh, He's not trying to preach to anybody, but these are things that are sustaining him. I mean, they try so many things. He goes out into the desert to wait. He gets a letter to his brother, uh, Rodrigo who was captured with him, but released before him uh, because he's not carrying the letters. Uh, They say, okay, you wait on the beach on this day and I'll come up in a boat uh, and I'll rescue you. And it doesn't work out. People betray him. Uh, And that goes on for five years. And there's a city of Oran just down the road, which is Spanish. He can go and see it. He can stand outside the walls, but he can't go in it. So who do we have to thank? As always, it's his mother, 
Uh, <laughs> his mum gets him out. His mum gets him out. Sure. <laughs> I love his mum. She's great. <laughs> she is. Because you know what she does? She lies through her teeth. Yeah. She, she, because it's her son. I'm, I'm, I'm saying that. But basically, she, you need to get money. And there are various groups within Spain that get funding from the church, from friars, from monasteries to pay ransoms. But the ransom they're asking for Cervantes, it's, it's, it's pretty high. So uh, she has to present as good a case as, as possible. Well, that's really it. So what best than the sorrowful weeping widow? You know, <laughs> there's Rodrigo, the husband, back home thinking, where's she gone today? And what she's doing is she's signing a document saying, as a widow, I need to have my eldest son back to help look after the family. So she's, and she does it more than once. You know, she's, she's, she's prepared to take that risk of being found out. And it's her persistence that in the end leads to the funds being raised that can then pay for the ransom. But it, and now what I'm going to say next sounds like pure Hollywood, but as far as I can make out from the sources that I've read, uh, very, very trustworthy, he's actually on the dock side. And I'm not saying he's going to be put onto the ship to, uh, Constant- to Istanbul, but that's what's going to happen to him. The ship's there, he's there, the plan is he goes onto the ship and he disappears into the Turkish Empire. Because after five years, we've not heard anything. No, you know, uh, we might as well get some money, get some return, spend a lot of money on this guy. Mm. Uh, and the, the paper turns up, the friar turns up with a bit of paper, the note of credit saying this is being, you know, this money has been deposited here. Uh, and it's uh, Miguel de Cervantes Saavedra. He is to be set free. So he actually is on the dock side, ready to be transported. When that that's so what does he do when he gets back to Spain? He goes to write for theatres, doesn't he? Yes, he does. I mean, that's, I mean, that's it. What does he do? I mean, he's, he's, he's got one good hand. Luckily, you could say it's his right hand. So he's, you know, able to write. He still wants to be a writer. Uh, he can't do anything manual, you know. Uh, 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 his brother, Rodrigo, goes off to the wars. He becomes a soldier again. So there's some money coming in. So he's, yeah, he's, he's, he, he's, he's writing for what's called the Corrales which are the theatres opening up in, in Madrid. And, and the same in England, you've got the first theatres appearing and they're not writing religious works. These are now works of comedy, classic adaptations and so on. Uh, he's also writing pastoral poetry, so lovesick shepherds and so on. Very different from, from, from what he's famous for and not making a lot of money either. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Let's talk about what he is famous for. Well, How is, does Don Quixote come into this? Um, because that is what makes him famous, isn't it? That he's thrown in prison. That's really probably. <laughs> I what love it this is. guy. He's thrown in prison. Uh, he he's he's left Madrid. He's got married. He's staying in a place called Escabias, 
which is in uh, Castilla-La Mancha, which is Don Quixote country. Uh, in, in the south, very flat, uh, uh, very hot. He is requisitioning grain and oil for the Spanish crown to go into the ships that will form the 1588 Armada, which is going to sail against England. So that's what he's doing. He turns mm. his back, he turns his back on literature. And he does that, separates from his wife. He's in prison. He's excommunicated. Uh, he's always been accused of corruption. He's probably actually one of the only uh, uh, requisitioners who wasn't corrupt at that time. And then he is put in prison when the bank uh, that he is depositing all the money collapses. And he's thrown in prison. And he's thrown in prison in the biggest prison in Spain. It's not in Madrid. It's in Seville. Uh, and depending on how much money you've got, you're at different levels of incarceration. So if you're just picked up off the streets as a pickpocket, you're probably going to go on the bottom floor. Mm. But, you know, the more money you've got, the higher you go. So he's probably not the richest, he's not the poorest, but he's in there for three months. He is banged up properly for three months before they realise, it's a bit like Father Ted, the money was just resting in his account. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, he's, and he's let out. Uh, but something seems to happen there. Or it's the accumulation. He spent so long with, how can you say it? Just every kind of person, from almost the richest to the poorest. He's seen war. He's seen poverty. He's seen the inside of, of, of prisons. He's seen the best. He's seen the worst. And he seems to suddenly realize, oh, you know what I do? I write down the way that people talk. This is what is notable about uh, Don Quixote. It's written in the Spanish, in the Castilian Spanish of the period. Mm. These are real people. You can say it's fantastical, but if you compare it to all the chivalric romances, Amadis of Gaul and so on, it is light years away from it. So it does seem to be something to do with, as I say, that moment in prison. But the accumulation of, say, 10 years of the war all comes together in that moment. And over about three, four years, he's working on the first part of, of Don Quixote. And he gets it published pretty straightforward. However, not before the poor guy is accused of murder, which is the, which is the next thing that... that, that comes up so it's what i'm saying is the book is picked up by well a publisher publishers were booksellers too so i think it's a guy called robles uh you can go and visit his workshop in in madrid you can see where i would argue the most important work of fiction ever written and published was actually printed uh and it becomes a bestseller straight away straight away I mean, mm. it just it goes on sale. There's no advertising. There's, there is word of mouth. We'll talk about that maybe later on. But it becomes a Spanish bestseller and an international bestseller within months of it being published. There'd I mean, it spurs like fan fiction, doesn't it? People are writing their own second part. Absolutely. They're that excited about it. Yes. Oh, I mean, and again, copyright is a very, very <laughs> grey area in those times. So people are publishing their own copies. Uh, they're making their own versions. And as I say, there is uh, the, the infamous or, or, or famous fake second part, which he then talks about when he writes the second part. Because in the novels, there is about a space of about a month in terms of the chronology of the novels. There's actually a space of, 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 of 10 years. Mm. He only gets the second part published uh, a few, I think a, a year or two before he dies. Thank, thank goodness. Uh, why is Don Quixote so important? It's so important because it tells us who we are. In the figure of Don Quixote, uh, who, that's actually not even his, 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 his real name. He starts off as Alonso uh, Quijano, uh, but he takes on, on, on the name uh, Don Quixote. In his madness lies every aspect of humanity, of hope, of desire, of a seeking for purpose and destiny, 
an understanding of our mortality. Uh, so you have these very burlesque scenes. You know, I, I grew up with him tilting at windmills. There's so much more. The poor guy gets beaten up every 10 pages. And it's a big book, you know. <laughs> uh, the poor guy, I mean, and, you know, and he's in his 70s. Uh, uh, he, he believes that a puppet show is actually real and he wrecks it. Uh, he descends into the cave of Montesinos and believes that he's transported into a parallel universe. So there's everything there to laugh at. Mm. And I do laugh out loud. I mean, that's the other thing. It's just, it's a funny book. But you look at Don Quixote and you see us. We're not symbols. It's not some dialectics from Plato. It's not some Aristotelian discussion on the nature of poetics. It's about people confronted with challenges every day and how they cope with them. And he is just funny. You know, I'm, I'm glad I read it when I was much older. That, that yeah. is true. You do have to push yourself through it. But, if you, but this is the other point. If you look at what this idea of pushing through, this book comes out of nowhere. Uh, uh, and it's interesting. The English pick it up within months in Spanish. There's a copy deposited by the Earl of Southampton in the Sheldonian Library. Mm. Uh, I'm not saying he bought it because it was by uh, uh, Cervantes. I'm not saying that. But there it is in 1605, the year that it's, it's, it, it's translated. Lord Howard in 1605, after it's been published, before it's in English, attends the baptism of the crown prince in Spain. And he's taken, as you would be, to see a bullfight. In the interval, what do, what do they bring on? A, a, a show. And it's a show involving Don Quixote and Sancho Panza to get some laughs. And so, you know, he's going back to London, having a chat with James VI of Scotland, James I of, of, of England, and saying, do you know what? It's difficult to see this bullfight, but in the middle, they had this crazy show where this old knight and a wee fat guy on a donkey kept mm. on falling off things and getting hit by big things. So it's translated into English, I think by about 1612, uh, by a guy called Thomas Shelton, who's actually under surveillance by the English uh, Secret Services. Uh, but if you Go forward, you look at uh, Samuel Johnson, Dr. Johnson. It's one of his three favorite books. Uh, you couldn't be a well-read person without having read uh, Don Quixote. You couldn't. You couldn't. And also remember, at the time of the publication, people would have read it in Spanish in, in England too because Spanish in many ways was the lingua franca at that time. That was how you negotiated. So, you know, the sons of noblemen would have been taught Spanish as well. So they could, they would be able to engage with what was the most sophisticated uh, hierarchical court within Europe. So reading uh, Don Quixote would, would, would not have been a big problem. That's mad. I mean, so, but he still takes crap from his contemporaries, doesn't he? I mean, to me, he is Spanish Shakespeare, but I, I think he's better than Shakespeare. I think his life experience is fantastic, and the, oh. and his own story just beats the living daylights out of Shakespeare. Oh. So oh, why I mean, does he still take crap off of people? Well, it goes right back to when he was alive. Remember, he doesn't have the paperwork to show that he is not Jewish, Muslim, or a converso. He's got witnesses to to, to, to say that, but he can't prove it. And uh, there's, there's uh, for example. Uh, there's a, another famous writer, Lope de Vega, uh, who's, you know, his plays are worth seeing. You know, if you do understand Spanish and you want another perspective on culture, absolutely. Uh, and he's famous for finishing one play, starting on another. He writes a, a poison pen letter to Cervantes when he's in, in uh, Biedolid. He actually just, you know, just writes it uh, to him saying, uh, making horrible comments about the fact that, yeah, you, you know, because he talk, talks, makes subtle mentions about pork, but in a way which is saying, yeah, you're not exactly the full shilling, are you? And using this word manco 
as, as, as an insult. Uh, remember, Cervantes doesn't have a, a rich protre- uh, protector, nor does he want one. I mean, you look at Ben Johnson, how many royal masks does that man write? Mm. Clearly enough, you've got a living to do. But Cervantes didn't want it. He wants the independence. I think that's part of it. And I think if you, again, spoke to Spanish people as well, I, I think they would say there's an element in any society, but it takes its own particular form in every society, of just jealousy. Yeah, it sounds like it's just like the 16th century equivalent of Twitter shit to me. Yes, yes, exactly. (laughs) Exactly, because he never makes much money out of this. I mean, when he dies, he leaves something. Uh, I I don't know who to, I mean, to his daughter, but he doesn't have much of a relationship with her anyway. Uh, Basically, the the line uh, runs out with him. Uh, So it's not as if he benefited uh, uh, financially, but he did get the praise. People knew that he was being published in South America. Mm. Within a year, he's he's being read over there uh, as as well. And I think it's interesting even now, uh, there was a whole thing, uh, 2015, you know, can we find the remains of Cervantes? Uh, Because the thing about Spanish funeral customs is, for example, the town where I live, the municipal the municipal cemetery has high walls around it. It's not a big space. It can't grow anymore. So, as we've been doing uh, here, they centuries, bury on top. Yeah, and they reuse. You pay mm. for a certain amount. Then, if you don't keep on paying up the rent, the bones are removed, put into an ossuary, and then it's recycled. So you do have this. Uh, or, for example, a church is knocked down. Velázquez possibly the greatest painter up there with Picasso. Uh, Belasquez, we know where the church was, where he was buried, but we don't know where he is anymore. You know, mm. So uh, you've got that. You don't put the same importance onto the remains of the dead. There is no Westminster Abbey. Yeah. So by an incredible amount of great detective work, I mean, this is what clever people do between yeah. scientists and historians. Like, okay, how do we track down something that can't be tracked down? Let's do this. So through the documents, through through the remains, they find the remains of Cervantes and his wife. No way. Where did they find him? They found him in the convent where he was buried after the first one where he was buried was knocked down. Uh, uh, but it wasn't easy. Uh. So now this, I mean, this is like, you don't know where Shakespeare is, okay? You know, yeah. it's that big a thing. Uh, but if you want to go and visit him, you can only visit on a Friday and a Saturday, and you can only visit for half an hour each. You know, you 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 can't commune, you can't be there, you can't spend time and think I'm standing in the presence mm. of the greatest writer or the one with the biggest impacts. Because every novel that you or I have read, everything owes it to Cervantes. Otherwise, we'd still be reading about bloody Greek gods and, and knights and women trapped in, trapped in towers and giants. Mm. You know, that, you know that's, that's how important it is. So I think even that, I think, is a reflection of, yes, we learn about him in school. He's incredibly important. But publicly do we actually value in the same way that Shakespeare is valued and rightly so uh, but as I say I don't think he gets anywhere near the acclaim that, that that he deserves absolutely Colin thank you so much I so Not agree and everyone should know about this guy and everyone should read this book once again you've just brought your passion in spades and given oh, us you. a great story um, on Spanish history so thank you so much Not at all always my pleasure Join us tomorrow when Nikolai Eberholz joins us to conclude his tale of Austria-Hungary in the First World War. This has been immensely popular and he rounds things off by talking to us about 1917, 18 and the fall of the empire. So don't miss that. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus and we would really appreciate it as we would love to do so.